Well, welcome back to the Goodman Lantern Show. I'm super, super chuffed today to call and invite my good friend, Jim James, who actually I met through the Unnoticed Entrepreneur podcast, where I was his guest. And uh, we, we kindly invited me onto the, onto the podcast and get to know a little bit more about him. As it happens, there's a common thread which runs through us, which one of which is EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. And uh, Jim, you were part of that. But Jim, before we jump into the, the podcast today, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Jim James? Well, thank you, Goodman. Yeah, you're a, a prize guest on The Unnoticed Entrepreneur. So thanks for coming on and, and sharing your wisdom on the show. Basically, I'm an international entrepreneur, Goodman. I, uh, I know you're in Bangkok today, and uh, Asia is very close to my heart. I went to Singapore in 1995 as a young man and stayed in Singapore and built a company called East West Public Relations and then an internet business. Then in 2006, I moved to China, to Beijing, and kept the PR business, started that there, but also then started the import of a British sports car called Morgan, and was the vice chair of the Chamber of Commerce, started the British Business Awards, and uh, also was interim CEO for Lotus Cars uh, as a function of the work that I was doing with my own car business. And I think importantly for, you know, for... Um, our conversation today about international and sort of cross-cultural communications. You know, I've, I've built teams in Southeast Asia, North Asia. I also then started an, uh, an office for my India uh, business. And so over 25 years, I was based in Asia, moved back to England in 2019. And now I'm running the Unnoticed Entrepreneur podcast and book and um, some training uh, around unnoticed entrepreneurs. I love that. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, you are a prime example of somebody who can, I can say is somebody who's been there, done that, which is amazing. And there's one thing I keep hearing all the time is about this thing called cross-cultural leadership. I'll, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've got in, in those sort of areas at all, but I would love to hear from you as an, as a, some, somebody who's been there, done that and, you know, run businesses. What, in your opinion, or in, in, your, in the way you see it, is a cross-cultural leadership requirement? How is it to be one? How do you to get that, that mindset? I think, first of all, Goodman, if I can, you know, cross-cultural, I think, applies to not just people of different race. You know, my wife is actually from Shanghai, and I have two beautiful Chinglish girls. But the challenges of cross-cultural are the same across generations and even across social class. So mm -hmm. you can find that a certain class of person, let's say educated, uh, international outlook, um, self-driven, you, you could find commonalities with those people in different countries more than you could find commonalities with people in your own country. So you and I were members of EO and a, and a great friend called Rich Robinson and I started EO in China. We started the Beijing chapter back in 2008 and I was the founding president. And, you know, as you know, when you get EO people together, they can come from South Korea, they come from Indonesia, they come from Australia. We went to Dubai uh, for the Global Leadership Conference. Where they're from is not important it's where they're going that is really the binding 
point for everybody. So cross-cultural communication and cross-cultural leadership is really about identifying where you're going as a team, the goals of the organization. And the difficult part is understanding where everybody's come from. Because two people with the same profile going to the same place have got less travel to do than two people coming from a different place. So when you have intercultural leadership and management, it's very tempting, especially, and I'm going to use a stereotype, but as a Western male in Asia, there were certain expectations uh, and also certain, I'm going to call it sort of quarter given, especially in the 1990s and 2000s. It's a bit different now, I think, and rightly so. But often people would defer to the foreign male. And certainly in China, where they still operate with the Confucian thought of the eldest male would be the leader by default. And also that a foreigner must be an expert because it, they must be good to have got to that other place, right? So there's, there's already in, in place some expectations. So what we have to do as a, as, a, as a leader, I think, is to take stock and put our own ego to the side and say, this isn't about me, this is about the team goal, the organization goal. And my role is to facilitate everybody to overcome whatever challenges that they might have. It could be uh, a language one, for example, you know, to find maybe someone from Thailand working in a team of people also from Indonesia and Vietnam and Australia. And although we're all communicating in English, not everyone had it as a first language. So you had to kind of level up so that it wasn't just because you spoke English as the first language that you got to speak first or that what you said got taken as most important. You have issues of where people maybe have cultural issues about whether men or women should have an equal say, for example. So I think as a leader in intercultural situations, it's about realizing that everyone's very different and your job is to Help those along that maybe feel insecure about their difference. Maybe also get those that feel kind of a bullion or maybe even feel empowered by the lack of relative strength in the other people in the team. And so you just need to, you need to hold back a little bit. You know, in Singapore, we always used to have lots of great Australians, for example. Uh, they were super, super assertive and aggressive and, uh, and ambitious. We had to say, I know you can do all that, but we need to let this woman from Malaysia be involved. And she's got great value to add as well. High performing teams are then, for me, Goodman, where everybody's getting respected. Everyone's given a mm. chance to play their role. Mm. But the roles are all driven and agreed upon by a common vision of where the end goal or the destination is. Yeah, that's a great answer, by the way. I mean, I, I can see that you have gone through several 
opportunities, challenges potentially to kind of reach where you are and the mindset you have obviously has come from your experience. Would you say that there was a, a, a major challenge leading multicultural teams within your organization? Or maybe did you see other organizations having challenges? And if so, what would you advise them to do to really get over that multicultural team scenarios which they have come across? I would I would say that my experience is getting people to do things that are levelers. Okay. So getting people to do things where the respective strengths and weaknesses are reduced to almost nothing and where the activities require teamwork and for the activities to illustrate that the absence of teamwork leads to failure so i give you a couple of a couple of examples so you know i led teams in southeast asia and in china and in india and i've also done intercultural teamwork you know for example, for Philips, I had all the local managers come to Indonesia, for example, for the lighting division. And I also ran a, a group uh, for Sony Pictures in Singapore. And what I would do, for example, was I would take a team off-site and I would have them do ropes, climbing. We took our teams to do paintballing. You know paintball shooting in outside of Beijing. And it was very interesting because the people running the companies were often the people who got shot first because they were the ones who went, hey, I could, you know, and they were they were so used to being out front that actually in the scenario of paintballing, being out front and being loud is a liability, right? And, and actually to capture the flag, you need a strategic mindset. So the person who would sit back and go, hmm, there's the flag, right? If we move around there to draw off their troops and if we, uh, uh, but we let one person go that way where no one's looking. And that could be a diminutive Chinese woman who does accounts, right? Because she thinks in a strategic manner. So activities that illustrate the importance of everybody's role and where there is a definite goal, capture the flag in that particular case, or with Sony, I'd workshops where I gave them a whole bunch of materials and said, you've got to build a tower, right? And you've got this much time, these materials. Um, and actually what I did in that case, now I'm thinking about it, I had a whole bunch of stuff with prices on it, like $2, $5, $5 and I gave them all a, like $20 each as a team. And I said, you've got $20 to bid for this stuff in the, in the middle. And you buy the, you buy the stuff from the market and then you build the tower. And it was fascinating to see the team work. People want, you know, there was negotiations in the team and so on. And the learning again was that the team had to collaborate because if one person forced through in this particular case with Sony, one person forced through, I want to buy this, this, and this, no one else wanted to help them build it. Right? Mm. So they'd have all this stuff, but the rest of the team, well, frankly, you didn't engage me with 
buying. So why would I want to build this for you? Right? So there's a couple of examples that I've implemented in my own companies and for clients uh, where it was about getting people to work together where their respective seniority in the organization or their uh, personality traits that maybe make them dominant in the office were no longer valid, were no longer the key points of success. And those are huge fun, by the way. Um, and I encourage anyone to get out and do that rather than just sit in an office. I, I hear you. I mean, does that also mean that sort of motivation is a key leadership skill? Is that something that you think is one of the key messages from, for the example of paintballing as well as, for example, bidding for stuff and then building it? I think actually the key to leadership is not so much motivation, but facilitation. Because you know, motivation implies that you're getting everyone to do something that you believe is important. Facilitation is getting people to agree on a common goal and to work with their respective strengths to achieve that goal. For me, Goodman, motivation is a byproduct of the vision of collective success and individual success. So I used to talk about the one firm firm, which is a concept that David Meister wrote about and, and is the hallmark of, of McKinsey, apparently. And this idea that the company doesn't succeed unless the individual succeeds and the individual doesn't succeed unless the company succeeds. Very simple, really, but makes a lot of sense. It's about teamwork. Mm -hmm. The manager, if you like, and if you think about sports teams, the manager puts the right people on the pitch. They agree which maybe which plays in football, you know, which play to, to have next in the sequence. But they don't go on and kick the ball or throw the ball. They make sure that the people on the team, on the pitch, are excited about scoring those goals. And what I think that the, the leader can do is to give people a sense of confidence that those things are attainable. Because quite often people would like to achieve a certain goal, but they don't believe or they don't have the experience of attaining that kind of goal. And so could you call that motivation? I, I guess you could, but I, I like to think maybe, Goodman, that it's about facilitation and getting people to see a big picture, work together to achieve that big picture, and then be energized as a team by the accomplishment of that. Well, that made me think about this thing, which I often talk about in my leadership calls is, Servant leadership. So all, all all leadership basically they are all servants of our team. We have to help them achieve the goals because if they achieve the goals, then we all win together. There's no I, you know, it's all about we. So it's uh, that does remind me of that concept. Um obviously now you are based in the UK, you were in, in, in Asia earlier. Um do you find that these these learnings which you have had about cross-cultural leadership, for example, the leadership skills you have learned apply as much in, in the UK as they apply in, say, China and Singapore. I mean, obviously, UK is very diverse as well. I mean, you know, in my teams, they were 
so many people who are across from Europe, across from Asia, Africa, Latin America, US. How are you finding the, the change from Asia to the British market or European market, for example? Yeah, it's a good question because I'm not leading an organization here now, Goodman. I'm sort of, I haven't got to that stage in, in rebuilding where I've got teams. So I think that the the experience and what I see, though, is that we have a multicultural society in the UK, which is wonderful. There is some social mobility, although I'm probably not the right person to, to ask how that feels to be taking on uh, those challenges. What I what I, I, I sense, though, in the UK is what we're missing is that sense of of vision and sense of what could could happen. One of the great aspects of Asia, I mean, you're in Bangkok now, you know this, is the sense of what's possible and growth. And I feel like Asia is really sort of managing decline. And by and large, people are trying to figure out how to at least stay where they are rather than go backwards. And Asia was so exciting, I think still is, because there was a sense of growth. Um, so I think in, in organizations, um, there are wonderful leaders here um, and, and great innovation. But, but generally, as a mature society, I think that it's, um, it, it's not necessarily going through some of these cross-cultural challenges, because I'm not sure that it's focusing on, on the benefits and maybe too much of, of what we've got as a society is already kind of bedded, bedded down. So it's, it's a great question. And I'm sorry I'm not really the best person to answer it, but gen generally it seems as though as a society in certain places we're quite intercultural, but I don't know how that really relates to whether people are really working that well as intercultural teams towards a bigger goal. Mm, understood. Yeah, I, I sense that a little bit as well. I think it also depends. I mean, I, when I was in my first company in Brighton, and when I started working in London, I felt found that that was a little different from Brighton. And I'm guessing that each region in the UK will have a different experience potentially as well, because I guess there's, a, there's mass immigration into London typically, and not as much outside potentially. So yeah, I, I wonder if that also has a uh, role to play. But um, so just from your experiences, and now where you said you're writing a book, you're working on different challenges, you're obviously growing and scaling up your, your podcast. Tell us a little bit about your podcast, The Unnoticed Entrepreneur. Who's it for? Who can they learn from it, for example? Yeah, thank you for that. The Unnoticed Entrepreneur is for all of those great founders and business owners that deserve to get noticed for what they do, but really don't know how to get that recognition. You know, I spent 25 years working with big brands, big companies that would pay agencies big money to get them into the newspapers and the magazines. But as we know, Goodman, the majority of any economy is in the SME market, the owner-operated businesses. And yet these are the ones that struggle most to get into the media. These are the ones that struggle with the day-to-day -day of managing a website um, using AI, for example. So the Unnoticed Entrepreneur podcast. Now I have 750 episodes. Can you believe it? Uh, it's I think number three in the UK. Uh, yeah, I, got, I feel like flat, I got a flat bottom after sitting down and recording this many, but um, I interview 
entrepreneurs and ask them to explain how they've got noticed, how they've overcome the challenges and what tools they use, uh, what mindset they need. And essentially the message that I'm trying to share is that small and medium sized owners can compete with big companies by using some of the mindset and the tools that their fellow entrepreneurs are using. And also that AI and the tools that are available to us now really democratize marketing, right? That you and I could be doing a live video stream uh, across the planet without needing a big budget. In the old days, we used to have to have a, you know, a, a bang and Olufsen video conferencing system uh, installed in an office, right? I remember looking at buying one of these when I started the, the China office in 2006, 70, you couldn't afford it, right? So the Unnoticed Entrepreneur podcast and the accompanying books and the Facebook group are really for, for those people that deserve to get more from their business and that could then build a brand rather than have the business reliant on them so that one day they can sell that business and either move on to something else or start another business. That's impressive. There's a book it reminds me of Build to Sell by John Warlow. Um, I believe he does, a, he does a podcast as well. Have you ever come across Yes, yes, it's, it's great. His um, newsletter is also very good. Yeah, he's a, an industry leader in that space, isn't he? He is indeed. He's indeed. So obviously from the unnoticed entrepreneur, I'm sure you get a lot of stories coming in, entrepreneurs talking about how they got noticed. Are there any any examples you can share with us of stuff which really blew your mind when you heard that? Oh, wow, is, is that even possible? Wow, okay, you put me on the spot. I've had over 350 I, I have, I have. I'm sorry. Entrepreneurs. No, 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 that's okay. No, it's fine. So I have a couple of little favorite ones that I like to I like to think about. One is a guy called Randy uh, Rusty Shelton, who has a book publishing business, and he shared something that was very interesting. And he he said that people want frameworks. You know, if you're creating content of any kind, or as a content entrepreneur, or as a business owner. You want a framework that people can deploy in their own businesses and their own lives. And so he's built a framework and a way of building, you know, books for people uh, that helps people to get noticed using books. Um, and that's very liberating because to become an authority as an entrepreneur can seem really daunting. But actually what people like Rusty are doing is very very interesting i had a chap called josh lisek on who's written 83 books as a ghost writer and that was also very interesting because that's an avenue i think a couple of the others that have been very interesting i've had people on that have created some very useful ai tools so i had a guy called mike cheng on from a company called lumen5 lumen5 you know you're, you're you're nodding your head there goodman right for those that don't know it he was kind of one of the pioneers in using text to video or creating text to video now there are lots of others like invideo and veed uh, and even canvas doing that to some degree but lumen5 what michael chang and his team have done when you know he's got over a million subscribers now goodman so i was, I was really uh, 
grateful that he came on the show, to be honest. He opened my eyes to how technology can transform the content creation process for entrepreneurs. I had Joanna Dravent from, from Prowley, and she's created a platform that gives an entrepreneur a million media contacts online. And uh, I'm just working with them now. We've just done a, a live webinar on the new AI integration, which enables you to put in some key messages or write a press release for you. So for 300 pounds a month with, with Prowley or for $80 a month with um, Lumen5, or even if you, you can use the free version of Lumen5, anyone that isn't a writer or isn't a videographer can take text that's even be created by ChatGPT and have a press release and press coverage and have a video, you know. So I've got 300 more of those, um, really good men. But I think the essential story is that if there's a recurring theme from all of them, I ask them, what's the one thing? And what they've all said, whether it's uh, I've had a, a a 19-year-old guy in, in Belgium who's built a, a product for helping hotels move up the search engine rankings in booking platforms to uh, a, an 85-year-old that runs a company doing payroll in Florida. What they all say is you've just got to get out. It doesn't matter what it costs. It doesn't matter how good it looks. It doesn't matter uh, about the technology. You just got to go and meet customers. And, and I think that's an essentially positive message, Goodman, that for all the talk of strategy, and we'll get bombarded with, uh, you know, I can help you with this funnel, I can help you with the da, 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 right? The number one recurring means of success for the 300 plus and the people I've interviewed, including you, right, is go meet people. Talk to them about what they need and serve them. And to that point about servant leadership, you have to be a servant to your clients. So for all the technology, which I do cover, the message is still essentially a human one that entrepreneurs want to work with people and people want to work with entrepreneurs. Indeed, indeed. And, and yet it's surprising to see so many entrepreneurs who don't even talk to their customers, who don't pick up the phone to them, don't email them, don't call them, don't meet them for coffees, don't meet them for, for meals. Shocking that in my opinion, but uh, oh, you, you raise a great point there and it's a great learning there. Thank you for sharing with us, Jim. That's that's, that's amazing. Um, I'm, I'm actually gonna just ask a couple more other questions. I just wanna understand this a little bit more. So the Unnoticed Entrepreneur, obviously it's your podcast, Facebook group, looking at other challenges as well. What's your end goal with that? Where do you see? Where's your what's your big hairy audacious goal with it? Yeah, my B my B hag. Thank God for Jim Collins. I do wish he'd come up with something sound a little bit better than B hag. It sort of sounds like something <laughs> you might catch on a bad weekend in Thailand. <laughs> um, so ultimately, you know, to build out the platform where I have the podcast, I'm working on a course. It's called the Podcast Pro Guest Course. And that's to help entrepreneurs to use podcasts properly, to teach them how to set up their lighting, how to have their sound, but also how to get their story right, how to get their backdrops correct, how to have the assets in place, like the photos and the bios 
that can be used for the artwork and how to use AI to repurpose the content. And then working on some physical events. So what I really, what I love, and in China, I started the British Business Awards, which are still going now. You know, I love creating those big events for people and, and masterminds like we have with EO, right? So, so to try and get out of the home office and take instructions from my own guests and go and meet people. So there'll be the digital assets, but there will also be the in-person opportunities for people to connect. And that, that's, and you know, I'm at the stage of my life, I'm 56 now, where I have to do what I love because you get older, you need, you, you don't have the same energy uh, to do things that you don't enjoy, but also you need purpose in your life because the money isn't enough really ever at this age because you just start to think about life differently. So I'm really leaning into this idea that I can help people that deserve recognition uh, but wouldn't be able to get it themselves. And it kind of plays into a funny thing in a way, plays into our earlier point, doesn't it, about helping those people in an intercultural group that were left behind, not because not as good, but just because they were maybe not as articulate or as physically uh, big as others. So kind of helping the underdog. Um, and I can I can see myself retire. Well, I don't think I ever get to retire, but I can see myself sort of having this as a purpose um, for as long as I'm still working. That's amazing. That's amazing. Jim, one thing you mentioned quite a lot was about EO. I would love to understand what value did EO create for you in your life? I mean, I know I have my EO story. You know, entrepreneur organization has these most a lot of people are entrepreneurs. How would you say EO helped you? EO, you know, the entrepreneurs organization, which was started by Vern Harnish, wasn't it? Um, originally, now scaling up and um, with Michael Dell in the first group. EO made me feel not alone, right? You know, for so many of us as entrepreneurs, we deal with our clients, we deal with our staff, we deal with our suppliers. And then by Saturday afternoon, when you finish doing the accounting and, and whatever else, you know, either go for a run or a cycle ride or or now I'm married and I'm with the kids. Um, and it's kind of lonely. And, and what EO did was got me connected to a group of men and women who had the same kind of challenges. And it also just fast tracked the solutions, right? Because you'd meet people and you go, oh, seven of us in a room. Seven, seven of us are facing this payroll issue or this HR issue, and one of us has already solved it. And I think that gestalt, you know, as in non-judgmental, non-prescriptive sharing with people that are your peer group is is just insanely powerful. And I, I wish I'd joined it much, much earlier than I than I did. Um, but yeah, I think that EO is just. It's just like a turbocharge uh, support group, isn't it, for your business and for your ego and for your well-being? I completely agree with you, uh, Jim. That's that's a fantastic thought. Finally, where can we, where can us, all of us, find you or on the internet or anywhere else? But potentially, obviously, on uh, ideally on social media, but or a website. But go ahead and tell us. Yeah, well, anyone's in Wiltshire, sunny Wiltshire, which is west of. Uh, of London, just outside Bath. Welcome. I'd love to see you. Basically, the best place is jimajames.com. I have a website, and on there I have 
links to the podcast. I have links to the training. I have links to the books. I also now have a radio show, Goodman, since we last met. I have a radio show on Radio Bath uh, talking about entrepreneurship. So jimajames.com and would be the best place. And there, connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, X as it's now called, and Facebook. That's amazing, Jim. You've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your, your, your knowledge, your experience with all of us. Thank you so much. And just want to wish you all the best with the unnoticed.